Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Vigan Garoyan was a longtime professor in religious studies at University of Virginia, and he's the author of several books, including The Melody of Faith, Theology in an Orthodox Key, and The Fragrance of God, and also Tending the Heart of Virtue, How Classic Stories Awaken a Child's Moral Imagination. That latter book came out many years ago, but a new edition has just been published by Oxford University Press, and I thought a little discussion of children's stories in this uh, super political age might be might be a nice uh, refreshing break and also tell us some things about the condition of, of youth in the 21st century and exactly what they need uh, and what these stories might provide for them. Welcome, Professor Garoyan. Good to, good to be with you, Mark. All right. Well, in your new preface, you do have a new preface in the book, you cite Charles Dickens. Uh, way back when, complaining about contemporary versions that had been just just created in in what the 1830s, 1840s, whenever Dickens is writing, uh, about contemporary versions of old fairy tales, which involved a degree of battleization, revision, uh, outright outright changing the the nature of the stories in order to suit current tastes. Now, one reason you bring that up is that that process has gone into fifth gear today in many places, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Now, um, the particulars of that was that Dickens' artist, who had done the illustrations for many of his books, had gone into the uh, business of publishing uh, versions or reinterpretations of these fairy tales motivated largely by an ideology of the time, which was temperance. And Dickens was a great lover of fairy tales, as was his contemporary uh, Dostoevsky. Dickens, one could argue, Dickens wrote novels that were fairy tales uh, and have those fairy tale endings oftentimes. So when he saw this happening, yes, he was outraged. He loved those fairy tales. He thought if Begin to fiddle with them that way, you lose the fairy tales. They're forgotten. And in our contemporary culture, I'd say that's exactly what's happened. Oftentimes, when I speak to parents or teachers, when I begin to take them through a fairy tale that they think they are familiar with, they're surprised. The same thing happened in the classroom, undergraduates and graduate students, over the years. So hmm. there's proof in the pudding there. And, and, and uh, he was right. They get lost. As far as he was concerned, once they get lost, our culture is on the decline. He also, because they are, they are foundational to our culture. In, in many ways, 
much as scripture is or the classic myths are. He ranked them more or less in the same category as I do. And in classical education today, it's not accidental that fairy tales are introduced early on. I think they should be introduced not early on, not only early on, but right through uh, the 12th grade. The proof is, is how successful my course was in, in, uh, in religion and children's literature and at the college level. Hmm. Well, one loss in today's revision of these stories is that of religious language. Yes. Correct? Yes. Okay, well, can, can you give us any, any specific examples of that? Well, yeah. Uh, just go back anecdotally some years. I, you know, one of my favorite stories is Pinocchio, and it's the first chapter of the first dis book discussed in this version as well as in the earlier version of the book. I might say that um, this second edition is 120 pages longer than the first has three new chapters, uh, it's, uh, and I revised the entirety of it. Um, yes, in the case of Pinocchio, it was some years ago where I taught uh, at St. Mary's College uh, Seminary and University in Baltimore, uh, courses on religion and children's literature, and I had, had two, Italian, um, two, two Italian nuns attend one of those courses, and they went through Pinocchio. They knew Pinocchio, and they went through the uh, uh, the uh, English translations. And what they discovered is, is for example, that certain sacraments of the church, which are mentioned in the original, are expurged, hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It happens in in a lot of the shorter fairy tales that we're more familiar with, and that's simply a matter of my comparing the German with the English. Well, what's wrong with the religious language? Hey, Why wrong? are they getting rid of it? Is it is it is it, is it what is it Protestant uh, before and now it's uh, Protestant uh, 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 anti-sacrament and now it's secular anti anti-religion in general? Yeah, we have a secular ideology now. Uh, you once upon a time, my my professor, old professor Will Herberg. Uh, used to say that we have a secular society in his book, Protestant Cat Jew, but he didn't go so far as to say that secularism dominated the culture, not in the 1950s. Hmm. It does now, and it's uh, almost inherently atheistic when, when it spins out of control, and it has. Yeah. So uh, these, are, these fairy tales are being attacked by a number of ideologies that are acceptable to this secularism. Uh, Jung still is there, but it's Marxism, it's feminism, goes on and on. And these stories are reconstructed and recreated along those ideological lines. And the religious, religious language is of no use to these people. So it goes first. Yeah. Now, whether they're antagonistic toward religion or not is hard to tell. But I can tell you from the literary criticism standpoint, and I've read much of the children's literary criticism, Yes, it's anti-Christian. Yeah. Y your opening statement, one of your opening statements in the book, asserts quite bluntly that children at a very early age want very much to distinguish good from evil and truth from falsehood. Uh, is it your thesis that classic stories teach them 
how to do this well? Yes. Um, and it has to do with the concreteness of fairy tales in particular, whether uh, older or modern. In the concrete, you find the symbolic, not in the abstract. They have a love for narrative. I, I quote Robert Coles on this. Robert Coles would s agree with me first that children are religious searchers and searchers of right and wrong. And he's a psychiatrist and a well-known one at Harvard, right? He taught a lot of literature in his courses, too. So uh, it's not just me that's saying this. No, it's, it's they, 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 there's something built, built into our humanity, God-given. For example, to read out symbols and to read out morality in the lives we live or the stor stories that are told to us. And if anything, um, our educational system uh, uh, works against that, not for it. Yeah, yeah. Now, by children, you, you mean at very young ages, two, three years of age, they, they've got a moral sense and, and a truth sense. Whether, whether they're accurate in their truth sense yeah. or not, but they do have the sense of it. Yes, they do. They can't articulate it. We don't know exactly what's going on in their minds and hearts. But I took to reading to my uh, children, at, yes, at the ages of one and two, uh, whether or not they understood it or not. It's just like th the same thing with playing music, good music for children. Yeah. There's a musical yeah. sense. What a wonderful thing and a gift of God that we, that we, 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 we listen to music. We create music. My, that's, that's incredible. That's divine. That's divine. Yeah. Now, you, you want to attribute to these fairy tales some, some actual wisdom. Now, here, here is a, a formal question. Why can't we just give kids the wisdom in, in propositional form without characters and plot and, and setting? Why, why do we need Pinocchio? Why can't we just tell them, now, all of you need to tell the truth? Um, well, Pinocchio tells, it gives the answer to that. Um, what I discovered in Pinocchio after teaching it many times was is that Pinocchio only gets his, his life right when he's able to truthfully tell his own story. And he tries that over and over again uh, in those episodes until he gets it right. And when he gets it right, then he's able to be a good son and be a real human boy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you Narrative need to show... Thing. N narrative shows the shows the moral in experiential human real real terms in 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 some way that it, that excites the imagination they see and hear these truths the good and the evil given again given given narrative form they can relate to it and it, and it sinks in well, it's important for children because children uh, do, are, are not able to experience all the things that an adult does. And, and, and it's a safe way, too, store, through story. Uh, they, can make mis they, can, they can see other characters making mistakes and they themselves not suffer for it. But one of the reasons why children love Pinocchio and, hum and, and adults are not so taken by it so so episodic 
is that Pinocchio makes the same sorts of mistakes that, that children make, and children are anxious to see whether or not Pinocchio can get out of that jam or not. <laughs> um, that's what they take great delight in. And the other thing is, is that, yes, children like stories repeated to them precisely for the same reason, because they're trying to figure life out. They're trying to figure how to, how to course themselves through life. And these no. stories enable them to do that with some satisfaction and without real danger. Well, this, 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 uh, this issue is reflected in your book title, and in the title of chapter one, where we have the term the moral imagination. Why not the moral understanding or, or moral knowledge? Why the imagination? <laughs> um, I protest. We're not principally rational creatures. <laughs> We're principally creatures of ima imaginative power. St. Basil in the fourth century said that God imagined the world into existence. And I happen to believe that that's probably more accurate, even though that's a metaphor, than to say that God uh, thought the creation into existence. Thought in, in the sense that a mind. Yeah. I mean, a broad sense of thought would include imagination. Right. But how do people relate to one another and particularly figure out morals, moral problems? They tell stories to one another. And they, they, they relate metaphors, uh, and they remember things, and they bring them up. That, that's, that, that's how most people do, shall we say, ethics. Yeah. <laughs> Not like the ethicists do. Right. Not with propositions. Let's go to your first example, Beauty and the Beast. How does that story work upon or excite or develop uh, a child's moral imagination? Well, I suppose it, and I didn't talk a lot about that in, in a direct sense in that. Um, I, I yeah. suppose that, that, that in Beauty and the Beast, um, first of all, um, she has filial love for her father. And, and when she meets a beast um, and, and, and is drawn to him, um, she has to struggle with that filial love to begin with. She has to learn how to love her father at the same time that she loves someone else. Beauty and the Beast isn't often talked about in those terms, but it seems to me it's an important element in, mm. the, in the story itself. Now, uh, the, the other factor certainly is, is that there's something in beauty that's absolutely beautiful, which is to say she can be, see beyond the physical characteristics she looks into the soul. She's able to do that. She's able to detect goodness in spite of, uh, in spite of the d distraction of, of his appearance. And that's a lesson to be learned by all of us at every age, particularly as children, hmm. where we make fun of kids, our, our fellow playmates, for being odd and not looking right and so forth. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. 
Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, about these lessons, how does a story avoid slipping into a mode of moralism or didacticism that might turn off a young reader? Sound a little bit too much like a, a schoolmarm lesson. Yes. Well, that's because the, probably the, the writer has a lack of imagination. Um, when you, uh, or they write the story for the wrong reason, which is to tell a moral or to make a, a propositional point or some such thing. And there's a lot of bad children's literature out there, which supposedly is uh, going to uh, inform children about what's right and wrong or morality, which uh, is deficient in imagination precisely because um, it's begun and written for the wrong reason, for <laughs> to persuade a child of this or that. That's not how a great story unfolds. Um, and and uh, we know that. We know that when we think about yeah. it. In other words, those are the kinds of stories that once you got the point, the narrative can be thrown out like the shell of a nut. And we don't no, want to do that, right? The narrative itself that. has an independent <laughs> yes. value, right? Yeah. It's yeah. much richer yeah. than that. Here's a question about, uh, uh, about something in the news these days. What did that vile company, Disney, do to the original story of Bambi and why? <laughs> <laughs> well, it made it into a romance. Uh, uh, it made it into a romance. The story of Bambi, really, as I, I in my in my book, it's in a chapter called "Friends and Mentors." The story of Bambi is about how mentors bring bring the mentee in into the skill, into the life of, of represented in the mentor. Um, and it's 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 something that that includes friendship, but goes beyond that. So, you know, the only place where mentors really matter in our culture, they're so democratized, might be in the arts. My daughter was a, a, a ballet ballet practiced ballet, did ballet, and through a college. But you know, I mean. Uh, you can join a ballet studio, but the but if the ballet teacher is a real artist, he or she is going to begin to choose those who really uh, are able to learn the skills, particular skills of 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 a ballet. Um, that's not democratic. Parents don't like that. But the arts could not flourish without that process of mentoring. And the mentor chooses the mentee. It's not a democratic process. Yeah. And that's what happens in Bambi. The, 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 the elder chooses a, a young deer to replace him when the time comes to protect, to protect the rest of the deer. That's his job. Yeah. That's, that's what he's called to do. There, there's another theme in Bambi uh, that you you bring up this issue relative to Bambi, and that is the importance of knowing how to be alone. And that mm. is 
Something of a special problem today, isn't it? When, when kids with phones never have to be alone. What does Bambi teach them on this issue? Well, it teaches them that there's a reflective life. It teaches them that, that there's a certain kind of courage um, uh, that is enabling of one to make decisions uh, based on that sort of reflection and study without all of the other distractions that come with socializing on every level. Um, and in the end, and, uh, that is a very important element for high culture. Most artists know how to be alone. Most writers know, have to know how to be alone, otherwise they couldn't do what they do. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, these stories have been around for centuries, in some cases. And this is a big question. Why do stories such as The Ugly Duckling and Cinderella, why do they have such staying power? Why do they inspire so many, so many other versions? Cinderella, I'm thinking, of course, that classic film by that ingenious, masterful filmmaker Jerry Lewis called Cinderfella. Yes? Yes, Oh, C Cinderella has been transformed many, many, many times. The Cinderella that I discussed to begin with is not Peralls, which is the, which is the model for all of the Disney films, but the Grimm's. Um, the Cinderella of Peralt is a morality play of sorts. The Cinderella of the Grimm's is about judgment, ultimately. Um, and and well, what happens in the Grimm? version that is different from our popular understanding of Cinderella? Well, well uh, uh, the, the, first of all, uh, oh, there's so many elements to it. First of all, the mother uh, never leaves the story in a sense. It, it's about the communion of saints, really. It, they were so deeply biblical to begin with. Um, the story of Cinderella that the Grimm's tell is grim in some ways, to be sure, but it's not gratuitously so. When blood is shed in the Grimm's, it has to do with sacrifice or sacrilege um, in the deepest meaning of the word. And at the end of the Grimm's, the, uh, the three sisters' eyes are plucked out because, they're, they're, because they were not able to see the goodness in, in Cinderella herself. Uh, it, it, it's so deep. It's the Grimm's were the Grimm's were masters. I mean, uh, it's just a shame that we don't know the Grimm's in this culture, and we are we are averted from them because they use the kind of imagery and metaphors that are in the Bible and in Christian liturgy, and yet we avert our eyes when we see it in a story that's supposedly for children. Yeah. If you were to, well, you imply in the conclusion that there is one uh, predominant attitude that the children's stories often impart. And, and in, in your conclusion, you go back to George MacDonald, who identifies this one attitude as the condition for, quote, the perfection of our humanity, and that is obedience. Mm. Uh does obedience, the value of obedience, 
I mean, you're talking about gratitude, which isn't isn't completely unrelated to obedience, but is this is this one of the themes that we see throughout fairy tales in some form or another? Obedience. Yes, it's it's in a lot of them. It's just that McDonald was a master of portraying it, portraying it in his fiction and in his fairy tales. He he said that obedience it open opens the eyes, makes us see. So ironically, uh, if we want to understand God, we need to first be obedient to God. Um, obedience is, is a way of taking all of those filters out and being open uh, to, to, to surprise, maybe uh, hurt, uh, and all the rest of it. But we're not going to be complete human beings unless we're unless unless we take away those uh, filters, um, and these filters are often uh, intended to protect ourselves. Um, but that's in the end a selfish sort of thing, and it cuts us off from many in the process. So o- obedience is very much a part of of fairy tales. It, it's a virtue that. As I say in the book, uh, we've lost almost completely. And yet for centuries, obedience was right up there at the top um, in in, in not only religious life, but uh, secular life. Uh, You know, it's been demeaned. It's been it's been debased. It's been said that it it makes us victims and uh, uh, all the rest of it. Yeah. Well, well, one final question, Vegan. You, you say that your class on fairy tales was deeply popular over the yeah. years, consistently so, at the University of Virginia. Right. When you retired, did anyone take up the course? No. The last time I taught that course, I limited it to 30 because I read papers uh, constantly, short papers. And I yeah. really I actually talked off of those papers. That was my method. I limited it to 30. The last year that I taught it, there were 150 on the wait list, and God huh. knows how many. God knows how many that didn't even bother to put themselves on the wait list. No, nobody will ever teach that sort of a course at the university today. Certainly not in the English department. Certainly not. And no longer possible in the religious studies department. Yeah, I, well, well, I, I, you know, I is, imagine. You know, you know the story. Too much. Uh, I mean, a lot of these fairy tales are rather uh, politically incorrect. Absolutely. In one way or another. So standard, they, they don't belong anywhere. Leave aside in the classroom in the college. Yeah. So, no, I, it's not that I heard flack from anyone because I didn't bother to listen. Or yeah. I listened to the students. I had many English majors in those classes. <laughs> Philosophy majors. Yeah. Psychology. I mean, they were all there. It wasn't, it wasn't principally religious studies majors, even. The book is Tending the Heart of Virtue, How Classic Stories Awaken a Child's Moral Imagination. Professor Garoyan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.